This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.StarkTruthRadio.com. Welcome to another Institute for Sound Public Policy podcast. I am your host, Kevin Lynn, and today is June 13th, 2023, and I have the pleasure of hosting Rob Stark. Now, Rob Stark is a journalist, author, and documentary filmmaker who focuses on California issues, fusionist politics, and future trends. And I have Rob on the show today because he recently wrote a substack that got picked up by Revolver News, Zero Hedge, and it's titled, No Collapse is the Real Dystopia, Still Waiting for the Big Collapse. Rob Stark, welcome to the Institute for Sound Public Policy podcast. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. Yeah, so, like, where are we right now, like... Does it seem like it does it seem like a collapse? You know, it seems it's not I wouldn't call it an eye of the storm. I would what would I call it? Calm before the storm or like a or just like a Yeah, slow... I'm thinking the calm before the storm and gradual collapse. I, yeah, well, it's interesting when I read your article, when I started to read it, Rob, a few things pop just came to front of mind. One of them, uh, John Michael Greer wrote a book a while back called Not the Future We Intended. And he used the term catabolic collapse. It was kind of like we're all sitting there waiting for, you know, the end of days. And he was kind of saying, and I think kind of where you're going, that, you know, things are bad. And this year was a little worse than last year, and next year might be a bit worse than this year. Is that a correct summation, real just just to get things rolling? Yeah, and it goes in these kind of interesting, like these different cycles. So it's like a slow decline, then back up a bit, like a, a recovery or a stagnation, and then a big drop, and yeah, these different like patterns like not like it's not like not like a free fall but to, i noticed like on twitter today like more like the biden supporters or people who are just pro-establishment and also the kind of like the the bullishness in the stock market like more people are saying like the new numbers out that showed inflation it was like a slight a slight dip and mm-hmm. the unemployment numbers which Obviously, like you can make a case that they're baked, but just on paper, they look pretty. They look pretty good. Like it looks like a tight labor market. So all these people were saying like uh, soft landing, no recession, 
And I guess the point, like the point I made at the beginning of this article, uh, no collapse is the real dystopia is like, I initially seemed like this, this brand, let's see, like, I think it was, yeah, it was this March, the Silicon Valley bank collapse and the other bank crashes. It seemed like that kind of sentiment, like there was no excuse for it and it was over. Like back in January, there was a really strong kind of bullish sentiment. And I think, I don't think there's going to be like one event that basically shuts that down. I think we're going to see like more of a, more and more a repeat of that pattern. Like I don't, it's really hard to say, like I'm kind of done trying to like guess and speculate, but it's hard to say like there'll be like one big crash. Then basically that kind of mentality and sentiment in the public, the sentiment just overall is, is good done for. Right, because if you try to speculate and call when either the top of the market's going to be or when that day, that Black Friday is going to be, that's hard. You can go broke during doing things like that, especially if you're trying to short the market. You know, myself, I consider myself in many respects a perma bear. Um, I haven't stopped stacking silver since 2011 uh i do a little i do it by cost averaging every month uh it's a and you know i should have stopped because i mean you know think 2008 there's kind of two angles there's people who want to make money from the stock market and then there's a broader political a social picture so like you can know that the whole thing is totally bullshit and it's in a bubble, but you can still like profit. There's people who pro- if they're if they're careful about buying like, the whole thing, like buying the dip is the meme. But the thing is, like, I guess what they'll say is like some of the people who are like perma bulls from an investment standpoint, they did miss out. Like, I'm not, I'm not like an, a big investor or expert on this. So, but just in general, like, I think those people like who were hardcore perma bulls. They'd missed out. Like there were there were opportunities to make a lot of money in that like COVID bubble mm-hmm. after like twenty in twenty twenty one. Even like even if you, it's obviously like a, it's bullshit. I think even like the financial YouTubers who are more bearish, obviously they'd acknowledge it. Those like the financial YouTubers and the more bullish side, those who really pump up the market, like they give a sense of legitimacy to it. So there's there's people who there's two separate issues. Like there's profit and there's just profiting off the markets and there's people who want to give the markets a sense of legitimacy and say that like back in 2021, they were saying it was a sign of a strong economy and not just the bubble. So those are that, those are like the two, those are the two like core distinctions. Interesting because you had made that distinction too, between the economic and the social and you had mentioned right up front, you said the uh, based upon current events, economic and sociological data and looking at historical cycles like the fourth turning theory and Peter Turchin's research, it looks like there will be a major historical crisis this decade. And I'm really glad you mentioned Peter Turchin because I'd been thinking about him and uh, for the for those who aren't aware, do you want to chat a little bit about Peter Turchin and his theories? Yeah, so he studies data. He has metrics. Like, he scientifically analyzes, or almost like mathematically analyzes data over history. 
And he has a number of like, key components that predict cycles of crises. So I forget what his key metrics are, but based on the but based on a certain number of metrics that you measure over time, it's all lining up right now that we are headed towards a big crisis. Yeah, because like Strauss and Howe, very similar, are demographics based, where they look at life, you know, how we evolve as a civilization, very similar to a human being. There are cycles we go through, uh, birth, eventual death. And in that, you know, Strauss and Howe talk about these turnings. And the fourth turning, which is like the dangerous one, which is what we're in right now, is where we were 80, 85 years ago with the world on the brink of total war and economic collapse. And I think uh, Turchin uh, talked about it in terms of demographics and populations. It's like population expands, which leads to a war cycle. And the war cycle leads to the population shrinking, (laughs) which eventually leads to it growing again, leads to another war cycle, if I understand them correctly. And obviously there's like economic data and these, these cycles of like crises that happen. There's one theory that says it's like every 70 years is a crisis. I'm not sure if that's Turchin or the fourth. Uh, that was Kontratiev. Because uh, he was, a. F- interestingly enough, I had bumped into... Uh, Neil Howe a long time ago, and I had thought that he must have obviously read uh, 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 Kondratiev, and his he was that he was a Russian economist who said just like he said every seventy years there's this you know you go through this cycle, and he said no he hadn't, and I thought that was kind of unusual because it seemed like he was really kind of taken Kondratiev's theories and put them on steroids. But yeah, uh, cyclical, like, like like the life of a long-lived human being. Yeah, so like at the beginning of my article, I point that out. Like there's cycles of, of a boom, stagnation, and crises. So overall, like the zero zeros or aughts in the 2010s felt very stagnant. Mm-hmm. You could say that previous decades, like 80s and 90s, were booms. With a, with obviously new a lot of different th- variables, many things happened in those decades. It's maybe somewhat oversimplistic, but so far I think the 2020s do seem to be like much overall much more uh, chaotic compared to past decades. I mean, that, I think that that is clear. It's just hard to really predict like how it really pans out. Right, and how it uh, pans out for society. And but like these alternative history YouTubers, like there's like what if Altus is one of them who <laughs> try to make these predictions. Right. It's, uh, you know, it's interesting because you talk about, you know, on one side, you got the bulls who are like, we're doing great because you mentioned you know, they think it's doing great because the market's a bit frothy and Taylor Swift concert tickets are going for but a they, Yeah, the AI boom is the other big one, like. I guess the the bearish take is that's creating like another super bubble. So these different, I think it's Nvidia is the company mm-hmm. that their stock is soaring, and an Apple stock is soaring too. All the big tech companies. So yeah, there is this big te- uh, stock market boom, and the bearish take is that more people investing in the stock market because of this boom means that 
the cra- big crash will be much worse. That's the bearish take. So there is, yeah, AI could very well create an economic boom, but at the same time, it will mean more more income inequality and most likely ero- erode the value of labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so would you say in terms of the reception on social media, uh, do people seem to welcome your your take on these cycles or do you find your, yourself getting a lot of pushback? Well, I mean, you have to consider the audience because it got posted on Zero Hedge. So Zero Hedge is like stereotypically it's almost like a joke that they're always they're It's like their perma bears are always predicting the collapse mm-hmm. nonstop. So it's going to be a friendly audience, but it got retweeted. So like jet here responded to it, who I, th- I think is the editor of the nation and a number of people like, like Biden supporters who were kind of, uh, I don't have it on me. Right. If you, maybe if you have it, but I don't know if you want to read what they wrote kind of dismissing, dismissing yeah. the premise. Let me go ahead and pull that up. Yeah, he wrote, um, being wrong subjects you to shit posting, which is worse than the worst dystopia. So he's right. And he was responding to James Medlock. James Medlock, is he, I don't know if he's someone prominent or just a Twitter handle. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Yeah. But they were, they were, they had, him. they were bookends on your article. Right. And he goes, TFW, you realize the impending doom you've been prophesizing isn't coming to pass, and you're bummed about it. <laughs> and then that's when Jeet said, being wrong subjects you to shitposting, which is worse than the worst dystopia. So he's right. <laughs> wow. Interesting. So, you know, it is a, it is hard because I think, you know, if you're like me, and let's just say you err on the bearish side, you would like there to be a collapse, almost like there's here are the consequences for all the bad behavior. Um, the point is because I think, I mean, there's different motives for people being psychologically invested in, in collapse, but yeah, part of it is I think just being a sense of being vindicated, like a personal, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, there is an element of narcissism to it, which is, I think you have to be kind of honest about that. And there's nothing inherently wrong about that, but there is a a sense of narcissism about wanting to be vindicated. And it is true. Like, I still believe that the, the bearish perspective will be vindicated looking at the big picture, but having a, a an event that vindicates like the bullish perspective, just a, on a superficial surface, it makes the bears look like fools. Even if, even if that's not the true, the true deeper case. Right. Uh, you know, the last time we got together, I was talking about, my experience in 2008, I had, you know, in late 2006, I had gotten out of all equities. I got back into doing commercial property tax work, which is where you want to be when real estate tanks. And, you know, we were just waiting for the big kaboom. We all waited a lot longer than we thought we would have to, but, you know, the, the and bubble. And this is after the 08 crash. Well, this is before, actually. We we had called it right. A f- I and a few friends had called it right. And it all, had actually all started with a conversation over coffee in a coffee shop in Altadena, California. Uh, we were just looking at where real estate values were going and where salaries and wages were going. And it didn't seem to make a lot of sense. So 
I'd gotten back into property tax and kind of sat there in stasis, you know, for all of 2007, thinking, why hasn't this market crashed? And when it did, you know, we didn't get the collapse we thought we would because the government in that catabolic way uh, threw out TARP, the uh, QE1, QE2, QE3. So they weren't going to allow the commercial real estate market to collapse on it. They just wouldn't allow it to happen. And consequently, when you hedge on the collapse and it doesn't happen, you don't make a lot of money in the process. So that's kind of, that was my lesson in that, yeah, you know, it's coming, but that when can kill you. Just <laughs> like the bare response to that would be uh, the collapse. There was a recession and a financial crisis in 08 and 09, but because of the stimulus and the quantitative ease, easing, uh, it was, it was effective in the short term as propping up the bubble and basically, I mean, it ended, the re- the recession was ended, but then problems like income inequality got worse when right. the economy was supposedly good. And this was under, it's not just Democrats, income inequality, like even under Trump, we had a good economy on paper, but income inequality got worse. But now I guess the, the key point that the, that the bears would make is because because of inflation, the quantitative easing and printing won't be – and just like low interest rates, it won't be like an easy tool to fix the crisis. And that's their strongest argument is it's that, the whole like the whole Fed trap where if they keep rates high, it will tank the economy. But if they ease, it will cause more inflation. And then the stimulus to, to solve the economic fallout, that will cause inflation. And then the debt crisis – the debt crisis is in both public and private debt is unprecedented in U.S. history. So that is like the strongest economic arguments that the bears have right now. Even if even if on a superficial level, in looking just at inflation, uh, I mean the sticky inflation is still a problem, but just the superficial yeah. standpoint may in the short term may may look bullish. Yeah, because the sticking inflation, the stagflation, if you will is that slow grind. I recall in the late 70s that that was, you know, people, companies were actually adjusting to 12% mortgages. There was a lot of shakeout because of that. But eventually, you know, they found a way to make it work, uh, to get the kind of returns, the kind of profits necessary to live in a high interest rate world. But that was kind of a slow grind where hyperinflation would kind of be indicative, I think, of a collapse as opposed to a grind. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. Now, it's interesting, kind of getting back to Peter Turchin, you know, they, uh, you know, he talks about he had this uh, hypothesis that, you know, population pressure causes increased warfare. And, you know, so what happens is they're. They're both very these variables that you know bleed into each other, and I'm looking at what's going on south of the border, where we could very well, by the end of the Biden administration, have increased the population of this country by six million people. So, 
if you look at, let's say we are in this fourth turning, which is a very dangerous period of time when institutions are being tore down and we have this increase in population, much of which is poor, you know, poverty stricken and has a lot of need, is very needy. I mean, no one's bringing their own roads, sewer systems, schools with them. So I wonder if that will trigger some kind of internal warfare here in the country. Yeah, that's interesting because, so like Peter Zihon, he's like a geopolitical strategist. He's always talking about this crisis of aging that nations face and how it's it's going to be like a drain on economies. It's going to be an economic disaster. But generally, aging societies are less likely to have like civil unrest, civil strife, and war. And obviously, you look at Russia and Ukraine, like they actually they have this terrible war and they both have severe aging societies. And then the other argument is like the argument in favor of a labor shortage, which you you can have like skepticism of the official unemployment numbers being like fabricated by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Sure. But there is an argu- argument, a strong, I think, I think a legitimate argument that there is some labor shortage due to aging. But then I was interesting, like if that's, if that's sort of the narrative, do you think the num- the sheer numbers of people who are crossing from the from the border crisis is like that dramatic to totally shift the narrative? Because I, I don't I don't know what the official numbers are, but I, I think it's unpress. I think the sheer the numbers of people who have crossed under Biden is unprecedented in uh, U.S. history. Oh yeah, I mean these numbers are absolutely unprecedented. Like I said, if things continue, we'll probably add six million people. Uh, and the, the the issue is more than it's the numbers are in a way bad. But when you look at the fact that no one is being vetted coming across. So, you know, some time ago, I was at an event where Larry Summers was speaking and he was talking about our, as you had mentioned, this demographic cliff we're facing. But we have this thing called immigration here in America and it's going to help us out. And I'm sorry, I'm looking at the people, the majority of the people coming over. Uh, they're not going to assimilate well into the country when you look at the language barriers, when you look at the culture barriers. And many simply aren't employment ready. Uh, we have see, we've had these waves of immigration. For instance, in the early 60s, we had waves of Cubans coming and Many of them were fleeing Castro's communism, and they were the intelligentsia. They were the white-collar workers. And subsequently, they're like our chief technology officer was three years old when she left Cuba and came to the United States. You know, these are people that eventually uh, grew up, went to, you know, had careers, and interestingly enough, when you look at the percentage of Cuban immigrants from that period of time who they have higher levels of tertiary education than the native born. And it's not surprising. Now, the inverse of that is if you're bringing over the majority of the people have sixth grade educations, uh, we're probably not going to see that level of success in that level of assimilating into America and eventually catching and following the American dream. That's that's my biggest concern. And it gets back to uh, Peter Turchin and 
we have this now increased pressure being applied from a larger population that are not going to have a lot of their needs met at the end of the day. And I think that just adds to the internal strife. I mean, especially if you factor in the the social and political issues going on, and then it's coinciding with an economic economic crisis. If we do actually do have a really severe recession, but as interesting as I, I think there was a period. So, like with illegal immigration, it was very high during the George Bush era, and I think there was some period around the 08 recession into the Obama era where there actually was a was a significant decline for economic reasons, largely because like real estate crashed and there was a big decline in the construction industry. So we're interesting is we're seeing like this big surge across the border coinciding with uh with like a severe recession. That's interesting. But with with your assessment, do you see this uh crisis as kind of con- Continuing at the same levels, or do you think it could accelerate even more so? I think it's going to accelerate because, as you had mentioned in your article early on, we have we're in this fourth turning that you know Strauss and Howe identified as a period of turmoil because the old institutions that we relied on are breaking down, and we're seeing that in every way. You had mentioned like Silicon Valley Bank failing. We're going to see a lot of financial failure. We're also going to see, we see failures in government everywhere where, you know, we've seen infrastructure. We Most of the bridges in the United States aren't getting a passing grade. Uh, so we have not been investing in infrastructure. So those kinds of institutions are failing us. Uh, we haven't won a war since World War II. So those institutions are failing us. And we've been in a lot of them. You think about it. Korea was a draw. We lost Vietnam. Uh, We just got humiliated uh, in Afghanistan. So then these are kind of, I would say, indicators of an empire about to collapse. You have unsuccessful foreign ventures. You have a rise, as you had mentioned earlier, in income inequality. The dollar, so I mentioned the dollar. Actually, I think it was just today, so this was after the argument. I published the article. Uh, Janet Yellen actually did make a recent statement that she expects a gradual, like, slow, steady decline in the dollar. So that That is very relevant to this. And then another point I did make in the article is that I think what they're going to do is they're going to use the interest rates to try to export inflation to other nations, and that would crash other nations' economies. Right, because I I don't know if you agree. What I have seen in the past in these dollar emergencies, you know, other countries that rely on the dollar uh, really take a bath when there's there's a dollar shortage. We seem to be able to probably pull it off because we more or less own the printing press, I guess you can say. Uh, but it, it's going to be felt much uh, it, 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 around the world. They're going to feel it a lot worse than we're going to feel it here in the United States. I think something like that did happen when Volcker raised interest rates in the 80s. So I think that caused uh, a financial crisis in Latin America. And then there was another financial crisis in Southeast Asia 
in the nine in the nineties. The second one, I'm not sure how re- related it was to U.S. interest rates, but I'm almost certain the one in Latin America in the eighties was directly a product of Volcker's high interest rates. So yeah, right. and this is it is also a with these interest rate hikes, it's it's a lagging effect. So we're just seeing like the tip of the iceberg. So again, like the bulls can say that that there's a soft landing, but again, like it is, there is this lagging effect. So the first, the first fallout of, of uh, higher interest rates was the Silicon Valley crash in March. And we're going to see like fallout. It's a lagging effect. So that could be the lagging effect could be a year or a year or two, two from now. Right. Exactly. And you know, it gets it's funny because you're you're published on Zero Hedge, and I believe their tagline is "On a long enough timeline, everything goes to zero. So, right, <laughs> right. So, right now, we're doing okay, but a year from now, two years from now, I mean, it just doesn't look good. It, things, I, I'm not. It doesn't give me a lot of cause for optimism, and. You know, talking about what's going on the border. I mean, what's going on the border is a crisis. Their their media is being is saying that it's been solved. My assessment is that it's still a crisis, but they're they're able to. I wouldn't maybe not sort of, sort of hide it or just legalize the set quasi legalize the process so it doesn't. There isn't this chaos at the border, but it's still it's still a big issue. Which is they're they're successfully. There's a, they've successfully been able to manage it and sort of yeah, hide the fallout. Get, yes, and getting into that quasi-solution you had uh, alluded to. So what they're doing is they're not saying, oh, you're here illegally, go away. They're saying they're, they're giving people parole. And then even before they come to the country with an app, they're giving them advanced parole. So someone who is technically illegal, regardless, is now not being counted as being illegal. They're allowed to apply for asylum at the border, and then there's an, uh, there's two there's a number of different programs they can apply from a number of countries in Latin America, and they can apply for asylum at the border. But as interesting as the profile of the nations are changing, so it used to be it used to be like primarily Central America, but it, with this migrant crisis, it's not one particular like nation or even region. It's basically like it's like I think the number of countries, like it's basically every single like continent. Yeah. Over and 144 vast, countries have yeah. been represented in this. In that fact, hasn't. I don't think that's happened. That that is totally like new and unique. In the oh, past, it's always com- been geographically confined. Completely. I mean, Michael Yon, who uh, has a Substack, and he's a he's a he's a real journalist. He does field reporting, and he goes to some of the. He, you know, he'll he'll go to a battle zone, and he's been doing a lot of reporting from the Darien Gap, which is that area. It's like sixty miles of jungle, jungle that separates Panama from Honduras, and he has been watching the flows come up there for the last two years, and they have been noticing a lot of Chinese of military age coming through, and he believes they're spies uh or because he said you know you don't and this is someone who's reported from hong kong and other places in northeast asia and he says you don't just leave 
the Chinese Communist Party and get on a plane and go somewhere. They let you go. They know exactly what you're doing. And he he believes he's had conversations with uh, with spies uh, who are uh, making their way up and into the country through this. I mean, this is pretty insane when you think about how a country would allow its borders to become so porous. Uh, yeah, and then there's also speculation about what the motive is. And this gets back to the whole like kind of collapse theory, and there's different speculation because I, I think there are some people who are maybe more quasi-conspiratorial who take the view that those in power want one a crisis, they want like chaos and a collapse to consolidate power. But I'm just, I guess, generally more in the camp that that they prefer like a kind of frog in the bullying pan theory. So it's a number, it's a number of different things. I think Biden has like political political motives, including partisan motives for supporting this, but it's also just I think reflecting like global crises as well. And I guess back to that point is what I said about the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is going to probably export inflation and and crash other nations' economies, and that will just exacerbate this 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 problem. And then yeah. also the other issue is like the food. The food shortages, so there was that deal, so I, in the article I referenced the deal with the grain, so Turkey negotiated a deal where, between Russia and Ukraine, so they could export grain grain through the Black Sea, and now there actually is some re- recent report that Russia may is considering actually canceling that, that deal. So that's huge, That that's the, that could very well be huge. Yeah, but like you said, for the, for the time being, it saved countries from going into famine. And it's interesting, too. It's a lot of this, maybe in a way we get lucky. You look at the uh, weather in Europe over this winter where, you know, you had really high, you had the potential for severe natural gas shortages and serious spikes in ups and downs in natural gas prices as well as other oil, petroleum products, and as well as fertilizer, too. Yet, uh, Germany and the rest of Europe seem to have been saved by a very mild winter, and even yeah, here that's in the, the U.S. Point. I mean, in the article, they lucked off a mild winter, and they had enough uh, existing petroleum and natural gas reserves saved up. And then also, I think the other issue is that with the Russian well, that's natural gas that's separate, but with because that's through a pipe. But with uh, with oil, I think a lot. What happened is a lot of the Russian oil went through like third parties, like other nations, like India. So the impact of a, of the sanctions wasn't as severe as anticipated. Right. We <laughs> conveniently looked the other way with our allies. Uh, I'm not a. Personally speaking, I am not a fan of our involvement in Ukraine. I'm, you know, I'm I'm not one of these people that loves Russia over Ukraine, but I understand. I think we had pushed Putin to the breaking point, and I don't think he wanted to do a war either, but was just kind of compelled to do so. Yet here we are. It's just, but that's kind of another example of this fourth turning period and a period where you know, there's more, you know, on, you know, we have this group of neocons in our government, you know, you know, Pearl, uh, oh, I, 
you know, just, you know, uh, who are out there, uh, af- actively looking to, to make war. And it, it's, it's just, you know, to me, it, it could end up in it being very tragic because I don't think they know what they're, what they're doing at the end of the day. I'm on the camp like that they're intentionally trying to engage in direct war against Russia. I obviously don't think that's the case, but I think they want, well, they want to like seriously weaken Russia, but they're taking a serious risk of escalating and fomenting like direct conflict. They're risk, they're risking that, but there is an argument since NATO is in Ukraine that there is an argument that's already a direct conflict so a direct conflict with Russia or China would be catastrophic, but my prediction is, and it's similar like that that uh, that history alternative history channel. What if Althist uh, he predicts like a major a major war this decade, and people talk about like World War Three, and I think there's probably what's probably going to happen, and the uh, the kind of chaos going on in poor nations will contribute to this as well. But I predict like a series of proxy wars between the U.S. and China and Russian allies, like a series of proxy wars throughout like the former former Soviet nations, the Middle East, and possibly Africa. You know that's a that's pretty big in scope. Um, yeah, and again, these you know they they might think that they can contain this, but rarely does that happen. I mean. In the same way that a government or and governments react to, let's say, a financial crisis and are able to ease it out, when there's a war, other governments will react to that in a way that you know serves their interests and could escalate things significantly around the world. Yeah, I think that's the case. I'm curious. You know, you do a lot of writing on California. And last fall, you wrote an article entitled Revisiting the Politics and Demographics of Bay Area Enclavism. It's interesting because I am writing my current article that I'm writing right now that has not been published is overviewing kind of these California demographic trends, but looking at the recession. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But yeah, now, if, you have it on, if you have it on you right now, that's I mean, I, I might not be super fresh, but if you want to comment on that, that's fine. Okay, yeah, because, you know, you it's almost like there's this balkanization going on, and it's not enforced. These communities have gravitated together. Now, uh, am I right in assuming you're something of a pro-Yimbyist in that respect, where it's like, yes, in my neighborhood, kind of, you know, come and build? And I've come to the conclusion I think both sides are pretty uh, pretty awful in different in different ways mm-hmm. so like with nimbyism it's like we're there i think a lot of it is you can say that it it's selfish i guess it's just like there's no there's an element of selfishness but it is dramatically restraining the supply and then on the yimby side they made a good case about just like the supply issues and things like urbanism and it's nice to have walkable cities but I think they've sort of aligned themselves with like some really like nefarious political and ideological strains. And it's not just the whole like woke angle or the left, but then it's also this kind of like, kind of like rent based capitalism. 
so they can have like good policies. When it comes down to it, I actually think like both sides are pretty are actually pretty awful in like different in different ways. Even though mm-hmm. like maybe in some ways I am more lean more on the side of like the Gimbies. Gotcha. I think the ideal position would be like each community would just build up based on what they feel is in the best needs for their own community in a kind of like perfect model they would build up for the needs of their own community. But the problem is like the current, but the problem is like the current paradigm shift doesn't really kind of allow for that. Mm-hmm. Right. But is that, you know, again, you know, you really, I mean, we're such a global, uh, Economy. Yeah, the reason it does yeah, it doesn't allow for that. There's different angles. Like it is a global economy and there's other issues like immigration. I think also with mm-hmm. housing, it's just that people are also it's they're hyper individualistic and they're their property. It's it is an economic unit and it's a hyper individualistic culture. But you used to get into something like enclavism and like would ideally like each community would find out like what is the needs for the community like what do do people in their community uh they need more housing and what are their needs and it's just not just very difficult under the different kind of paradigm shift and I do think like there is there is a lot of kind of like there's exclusionism because I think people like even if people don't want it to admit it in polite society but people are very antagonistic to like a lot of new new people and outsiders coming into their community. So basically economic exclusionism becomes the sort of like metric metric for control. And then what the problem is with that, it ends up the people who live there, they have to kind of pay exorbitant costs and they're kind of screwed over from both ends because they're screwed over by the competition from people from outside, whether it's, outside their community or even from abroad looking to move in and, and bid up housing, but they're also screwed up by the heavy restrictions on supply. So this kind of screwed over on both, both ends. But what the problem is the current paradigm shift doesn't really have like an easy, an easy, so it doesn't really have a, a fix and it's not, there is, yeah, there isn't without a major paradigm shift. I don't think there is like a clear solution, but I guess, I guess there is just the argument, the basic argument of supply and demand. Like you increase the supply and that eases the cost. And then there's other, there are other issues that do get brought up. There's one, one critique I think I've heard you make of Gimbyism primarily that their stance on immigration negates any of their arguments on supply. Then there are other arguments like about speculation in real estate bubbles and financial policies and like fed policies and like blackrock blackrock buying up a lot of property that also that also impacts supply right. so yeah i think those i mean those are issues for sure but i do think there there is a supply versus demand and a scarcity crisis so in mm-hmm. a sense yimbi yimbis are are i mean yimbis are correct when they say there is a scarcity crisis right whether that's regardless you know what is that the song from Mount of La Mancha? Whether it's the pitcher hitting the cobblestones or the cobblestones hitting the pitcher, it's bad for the pitcher. So whether this scare, how however we rely arrive at these scarcities, it's it's bad for the, the citizens living there. Uh, 
And I'm, you know, with I, I'm fascinated by the whole concept of enclavism because do you think it's about people just wanting to kind of be with their own at the end of the day? I'm reminded of that 2007 study by Robert Putnam, uh, who talked about the impact of, you know, he found that diverse neighborhoods, uh, the more diverse the neighborhood, the less the neighbors trusted each other. And this does, and it doesn't matter whether it's a small town or it's a large city. And is enclavism just, you know, something, a way that people are organically, you know, getting around that kind of yeah, so uh, lack of trust? Like left Yimbies and a lot of people on the left, their argument is that it's just a product of past laws, like things like redlining and discriminatory segregationist laws from the past. Maybe, I mean, maybe there is partial truth to that, but that's not, I mean, that's not really the answer. That's partially true. I think people do kind of gravitate towards certain places and they're looking for, they're attracted to a place because of characteristics or people, I mean, people do, or people see it is, I think it's controversial to say, but people seek out people to live around and to socialize with who are, who are similar to them. And that's just human nature. People, human nature is tribal, but mm-hmm. I do think like the key is like what Robert Putnam said is communities. I think it's a downside. It is a downside of saying that communities are purely an economic unit and to just commodify like housing and areas purely in economic terms, like social capital is a tremendous issue. And like the breakdown in social capital is a tremendously, it's a, huge problem and that Robert that was sort of Robert Putnam got into so and it, I think it is true in it's true in a lot of places in urban areas but suburbia too mm-hmm. and do you see like enclavism as a trend that is taking off interesting how do you where do you see things in California I know a lot of people are leaving what are your thoughts on that I'm working on an article about this right now, but it's interesting is yeah, there's, there's some, like, there is some new data that show the degree of the exodus is very, is very, fairly significant. I'm just gonna I, pull I've heard the economic impact could be as great as $28 billion. Uh, yeah. In terms of... Let me, so let me just pull up the data. So California lost, let's see. So California lost a population, 600,000 people left California from 2020 to 22. So California's population, it peaked in January of 2020. And, uh, so this decline was primarily due to the exodus, but probably also like COVID deaths and declining fertility, but primarily the exodus. What is notable is, there are these like charts. If you look, if you look up the Public Policy Institute of California, they show mm-hmm. the data. So basically, California lost a lot of wealthy residents as well to other states because there was a narrative for a while that it's only it was the poor who were leaving California and that wealthy people were coming here from from out of state. And that's actually the recent data shows there actually was an exodus of the wealthy. That actually began be it began before the pandemic 
in 2018 and accelerated during the pandemic. So that that actually is more of a recent trend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I just pulled up. A, I just went to the uh, Public Policy Institute uh, site, and uh, yeah, they have the map. There was there's an article there. Where are Californians going when they leave the Golden State? Uh, it seems a lot of people, most, you know, the biggest percentage are going to uh, Nevada and Idaho and then Oregon and then Washington State, Montana, Utah, uh, Arizona. So it does seem to be a lot of the bordering states that they're heading out to. And that's got a that's going to have an impact as well in the long run, don't you think? I think it already has. It just. The question is like, will the will the exodus like accelerate? And there's so many different factors like demographic preference, econ- economic, including the recessions, uh, remote work enabling people to relocate. So, I mean, I don't know how much the exodus will accelerate, or we'll see some some kind of return, uh, kind of a cycle where it accelerates and then it eases it eases a bit and we see some like stabilization because that always seems to be the case but i do think like remote work is enabling enclavism because it's enabling people to live where they want to live rather than be tied to an employer and that means people will select places more based on like identity or geographic preferences and we are seeing like the it's called like the great sorting so People are mo- people uh, like Republicans, conservatives, and blue states are moving to red states, are moving are moving to red states, and vice versa. So, so it's it's exacerbating uh, balkanization. Yeah, interesting. And that again, I just I, I see impacts on social cohesion, and it's fine. I think when the economy is doing well, but when that exit stage left, uh, we could find ourselves in in a heck of a predicament without the resources to cope uh, with these these populations that are coming in at this time. It's it's a bit scary, kind of, you know, bringing it back into our thoughts on collapse and your most recent article. Uh, I think, uh, you know, if people are willing to come together, they can achieve great things. But if they aren't willing to come together or simply can't get over, you know, the hunkering down that Putnam talked about, I think it's going to be pretty bad for a while. And, you know, maybe the hard times will force us to come together. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, who knows? It's like, it's very, it's very hard to make these predictions, but it's, it's like the other, there's like this other meme that like good times make, Weak men, weak men make bad bad times. Bad times make hard men, and and then back. It's just this kind of like hard cycle. men make good times. Exactly, yeah. but a lot mm-hmm. of I mean a lot. Of, I think a lot of problems, a lot of negative problems are are a product that that there was this immense prosperity, and then people took that prosperity and a lot of the positive things for granted, and they didn't. There was a lack of like stewardship, right, and just carelessness. Uh, on a personal level and on the level of like political leadership, a lot of corruption. So yeah, like there is, that's kind of like the whole argument of like the doomers or accelerationists is in order for something good to happen. You need to like complete the cycle and like get things have to get like really bad first. And that's their argument. Like the worst, I guess the most like 
depressing, demoralizing thing to think about is just to be in this like endless cycle of this kind of like mid-level, like to mid to low stagnation that lasts like for a century. Yeah. Uh, actually, you know, I'm thinking uh, there was the book on decadence uh, by uh, Ross Douthat. The dec- it, was, it was called The Decadent Society. And then he talked about, you know, you know, you can tell a society is decadent, not because, well, they're doing orgies and all this stuff. You know, things just don't change. And to use the example of if you were living in the 1960s and someone was transported from the 1940s, you know, their dress would be very different. They'd probably be amazed at all the conveniences and everything. And then if you move someone from the 1960s to the 1980s, you know, they would kind of like the styles would have changed. The fashion would, you know, styles would have changed. There would have been a host of new inventions and things like that. But you probably wouldn't notice that big a difference between the 1980s and the 2000s. And that certainly almost no difference between the 2000s and the 2020s. I would think that it could just be like, my age, but I would think from the 1980s to the 2000s was a pretty big jump. But then from the 2000s to the 2020s, like today, then there's there's more stagnation and maybe more commonality. But I guess I guess in different in different ways because I think politically politically the change from like today to the from like the zero zeros or the aughts has been has been very dramatic. But I guess from like an a purely like aesthetic standpoint, maybe from 2003 to to today with 20 year difference, like the the aesthetics and kind of like the visuals of just walking around a city like that on that side, like it's much less dramatic than these like 20 year changes that took occurred uh, during the second half of the 20th century. So there is some sense like what people like what people envisioned like the future looking like in the year 2000 by today and and what it actually ended up being. Yeah, well, you know, I you know, I was reminded of this uh back in 2021 when I was watching the Super Bowl and the, it was ha- the it, the ha- during the halftime entertainment was a host of uh hip hop artists like Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, 50 Cent and everyone was getting into it. I thought it was awesome. And then a friend of mine, he said, yeah, but, that, you know, Dr. Dre, that's 30 years ago. And, you know, unlike, think about it, if we were in the 1960s and you were young. Music, would, yeah, like music, be... I think, like, music feels stagnant because music from, say, the 50s to the 60s to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, was a really dramatic shift by decade. And you look at it like rap music, hip hop is still very popular now. And it was super popular in the nineties. So that maybe that's some sign of a stagnation. Yeah. And, the th- and you know, doubt that was like, well, what if this just continues for a long time? Like the Roman empire hung in there for hundreds of years longer than others would have probably thought, well, it, you know, collapses around the corner. But, you know, uh, in the case of Diocletian, by inflating 
the currency or debasing the currency, he was able to keep the army paid, which kept the barbarians away. You know, yeah, I think like with added. the Roman Empire, how many years did it take to collapse? I think it may have been over. I forget. Well, this it was, was 410, years. I believe, when the Visigoths, you know, poured through the gates of Rome. But, you know, we're really, I mean, you look at, you know, two around, to 300 years. Yeah. You figure the time of Marcus Aurelius, 64 AD, right around there. It's, you know, that was a long time. That collapse was a long time in coming. You know, he was able to push back the counter, you know, a ways, even though his son, Commodus, probably one of the best, most appropriately named emperors of all time, Commode, uh, you know, pretty much destroyed his legacy and brought Rome down. But it was still able to kind of, much like here in the United States, it's bad, but, you know, re- people politicians, bureaucrats react to a problem and they shore things up and things are allowed to continue then. Maybe, you know. So yeah, like one thing I'd like to add is with all this political strife going on without the indictment of Trump, I mean, that's another thing. I I only touched on it like very briefly in the article, but it will be interesting to see like the outcome so will it cause will it cause a major political crisis and civil unrest, or will it be another nothing burger? That, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, it's hard to say because when this is much more serious because it's on a federal level, and it's actually Biden's Justice Department, where before it was just uh, it was just a DA in Manhattan. So this is far more serious. I think it will probably be a big deal because Trump actually is jailed and faces trial. That will really set off his base. And then the flip side of that is if Trump goes on and allowed to run. And with the whole Trump versus Biden thing, I think like the Democrats have a lot of the big advantages as far as demographics, institutional control. If I was forced to get to better guess, like I'm not going to, but if I actually have to, I think Biden does have the upper hand, even Despite being such a disaster as a president, I, I still believe he's more likely to be reelected. Because but, the institutions essentially yeah, I don't even believe in the whole thing about the vote, like the whole like voter fraud thing. I'm not even endorsing that. I'm just saying the demographics and the institutional control and the, those two big things. But I'm, and look, Trump actually, Trump is not super popular with a large swath of the. I mean, actually, neither. I mean, neither Biden nor Trump are totally popular. So, so but I'm saying, I think Trump. There is a win- narrow window he could win because that the because if the economy really tanks. So, if Trump is elected, that will really sit off the other side. So, I don't know if this this specific indictment could be a nothing burger. But despite that, there's still going to be like major political strife, regardless. I have to, I agree with that because to me, I just see this wall of corruption that has just been built up to protect, you know, the people and these institutions that are failing us. And they're not allowing for the change that needs to be done, whether that comes in the form of a Trump or someone else. Uh, we're not able to do reset the calendar or reset the clock back. And actually create reforms that popul let's say the populace would be enthused about and would get behind. Uh, I see, 
you know, what we have are just greater and greater deprivations. I, I yeah, and same at- with like, like with RF, RFK Jr., like I would, in many ways, I, th- I think he's, I actually think he's like far superior to Trump in many ways. Pro- I'll probably vote for him in like the Democratic primary. But the, again, like I, I think he's a long shot, like the chance of him getting the nomination, like I'll support him, but I think it's extremely slim. Hmm. Yeah, you see, I I think he has a much better shot at it than because I don't believe a lot of the polling I'm seeing. I I my gut tells me Biden's actual support numbers are, you know, in the low teens. He it's that bad uh, for him. Whereas I yeah, think- I mean that could that could be, but there's also like the whole thing with the super delegates. So right, like, okay, I, right, the I machinery. Think the whole, yeah, has, like I yeah. think the stop the steal thing. The Republican whole like stop the steal campaign. I think their argument was kind of iffy, but with like Bernie, that was just that was an outright steal with like the super delegates. Right. So even hypothetically, if RFK were to get were to like get the majority of the votes, like that that would come into play. And like the Republican Party has the same issues, like they're awful in a lot of ways. And a lot of corruption, but at least there's some room for new people to come in and make some degree of change. Like the Democrats have sort of become almost like the late stage, like Soviet inner party. I mean, this is even like kind of like almost like cliche, like Fox News tier talking points, but it is true. Like they're, they become so controlled and closed off to anyone new coming in to make and, and making change. So yeah, I think like RFK, I'll, I'll support him, but I, I do think he's, but the chance of getting in is pretty pretty slim. Like, what do you, what is your general take on on him and his campaign? Well, you know, it's you're you're there in California, and I used to be on the executive board of the California Democratic Party, and I got to tell you, you, everything you said is absolutely right. They are not only resistant to change; they are the party is brilliant in its ability to co-opt any of those. Look, I, I think of the progressive movement and in 2004 it was easy to spot the progressives you're either wearing howard dean swag or dennis kucinich swag and the idea was i mean the progressive caucus you know was the biggest caucus in the california democratic party everyone thought okay we're going to get real change no you know that the party still had a lot of power in it a lot of resources and the progressives that couldn't be co-opted or pushed out slowly or directly just kind of gave up. And that party that really was on its knees a bit just got, you know, the, the progressives ended up <laughs> feeding the beast as opposed to destroying it. So that's, you know, my view of the Democratic Party, you know, both in California and nationally. Yeah, like what's considered the progressives today, like the squad types, like it's a total joke. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what was great, you look at how the Freedom Caucus was reacting to McCarthy at the at the beginning of the 118th Congress. I mean, they wouldn't elect him. They, what was it, 15, 16 times? Whereas the squad folded immediately to Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, I think that's the point. That's the point, like Jimmy Dore who's who's from the left he often makes that point but it's like the system is very controlled and corrupt but you got to say like it's like these these people like whether you whether whether you believe 
there's validity to them or they're just totally control opposition. Like the squad didn't even try to make any concessions against Nancy Pelosi. Like right. they, they just confirmed her. And even like Bernie, like in 2016, like there was maybe a lot of energy behind like Bernie's movement. I think he's has genuine views. I just think he's sort of like totally given up and totally, yeah. totally kind of burnout, especially that he's pretty, he's pretty old right now, but yeah, like Bernie basically is like supporting Joe Biden and, and saying we, we have to, he's like talking about his issues like Medicare for all, but it's like, he's, he's become but, like but a total it's, joke. It's this tired old saw. And I agree with you. He is a joke. I mean, to me, when he was in Philadelphia in 2016 at the convention, knowing full well, and I, I do believe elections get stolen, that Clinton had stolen that primary from him. I mean, Debbie Luzon, the late Debbie Luzon, the, who went by the moniker the sane progressive, out there in the streets with a bullhorn, who'd been following the criminality of these primaries from Massachusetts to Arizona to California. And there was Bernie sitting in there giving obeisance to Hillary Clinton, the woman that stole his election. After that, I just couldn't respect the guy anymore. <laughs> Robert, this is great. We have hit that hour point. Uh, maybe gone a little bit over because it's always fascinating uh, spending time with you. So, uh, Robert, how can people find you? Again, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. And if people want to if people want to find me, I think the best place is is to check out my Substack, Robert Stark. Uh, .substack.com. Though I actually I don't really interact with people so much there. I just write. And if, yeah, I mean I encourage everyone to subscribe and to comment, and I read the comments on Substack, but I don't really interact that much directly. But the best the best way to find me would be on Twitter. And under the, my handle is uh, Starkian Hypothesis or at 2020 Blackstone. Great. Wonderful. Well, uh, to my audience, I want to say thanks so much for uh, joining me uh, with it on this great talk. Uh, if you, you know, it would be great if you could go to our website, Institute for Sound Public Policy.org, go to the donate page. If you, and uh, hit that donate button because it's you, we are definitely listener and watcher supported here. So please donate uh, and to get uh, to see more great content like we just had here this evening. Thanks so much and have a great evening.